The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Tuesday, July 12th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump aimed a gun at democracy on January 6th. The target was the Capitol and the bullets were the protesters turned rioters who believed the lies put forward by the president and advisors like John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, and Sidney Powell. They were Team Abnormal. Team Normal comprised such lawyers as the profanely blunt Eric Hirschman and, we found out via his own testimony, Pat Cipollone. The president assembled Team Normal and Team Abnormal before him and had them fight it out. As when a cold front meets a warm front, a storm ensued. The January 6th committee brought us the results of that storm. On the one side was this question to Team Abnormal, as voiced by the Dean of Normal Corps, Pat Cipollone. Where is the evidence? Evidence, he was told. What are you, some sort of wimp? Only Rudy Giuliani didn't use the word wimp. You guys are not tough enough. Or maybe I put it another way, you're a bunch of pussies. But when Team Abnormal could not grab the pussies by the facts, Sidney Powell endorsed this managerial technique. I mean, if, if it had been me sitting in his chair, I would have fired all of them that night and had them escorted out of the building. The point of all of this, made crystalline by a committee that really has proved itself skilled at audiovisual storytelling, is that there are reams and reams of advisors around who were all stalwart conservatives, dedicated loyalists, literally the people who defended Trump from past impeachments, who all said, and will say today under oath, we told him it was over. There was no evidence, there are no facts, there was no case, and Donald Trump ignored them. Like everything else the committee has uncovered, we knew this, but we didn't know it to this detail and with the vividness of these examples. The committee further heard from an Oath Keeper spokesman, there's a line item in LinkedIn, huh? And a Capitol Hill insurrectionist who says he no longer believes that the election was stolen because he stopped reading all the sites. Problematically, that guy, Stephen Ayers, said he did his own research to come to that conclusion. He may have wished to rely on the reporting of CNN, The Washington Post, The New Yorker, The New York Times, The National Review, even everyone on Fox before primetime, which is their version of Team Normal. But while Ayers' testimony, family man though he was, did little for me, overall the committee is putting itself forward as a quite compelling and meaningful source on what happened. They're not perfect, they're not disinterested, but they're valuable to believers in nonfiction, in accountability, and anyone opposed to, as Pat Cipollone said of Team Abnormal. A disregard, I would say, a general disregard for the importance of actually backing up what you say with facts. Speaking of backing evidence with facts on the show today, I spiel about the fact that the Webb Space Telescope is lit, it's off the chain, a million miles off the earthbound chain, and like that lady from the Where's the Beef commercial or the Charlie Bit My Finger Kid, it just might bring us all together. But first, whether it's the Israel-Palestinian peace process, the Iranian nuclear program, unrest in any manner of countries, the Middle East represents, as always, a warren of tough presidential policy choices. 
the upcoming meeting between President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia looms especially large on the presidential agenda. Joining me next is Atlantic correspondent and Saudi watcher Graham Wood, who is actually on better terms with MBS than Biden is. Graham Wood is up next. As President Joe Biden prepares to visit Saudi Arabia, he follows in the footsteps of Graham Wood, who recorded a magisterial profile of the kingdom and the king-in-waiting in in the March issue of The Atlantic. And I just want to relay one of the facts in case we get too excited and deep into maybe the, quote, more important stuff. At one point, the mullahs of Saudi Arabia had a fatwa against all-you-can-eat buffets. This is important to understand the kingdom. Graham Wood is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of The Way of Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. Welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Am I right? That's the most important thing to understand Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah, the the evil empire. I, I love my all-you-can-eat buffets. And for a while, it was considered a form of gambling. Because gambling? It's true. Like, you might get food poisoning, you might not. Well, that, there's that part of it. There's also, you'd be putting down money, and you wouldn't know how much you were going to get. So if you if it turned out you were hungry than, hungrier than you thought, then it would be considered gambling, and, and that's against Islamic law. That's that's one of the weirdest things that they've uh, they've they've considered outlawing. So when did you talk to Mohammed bin Salman, and what were your impressions of your interpersonal interactions? Uh, in the second half of last year, I started speaking with him, and we had an on the record in December. And uh, my impressions were of a guy who. Um, First of all, he's learned a lot in the few years that he's been the crown prince. He's been crown prince since 2017. So his English is much better than it had been. Uh, his understanding of um, of where Saudi Arabia stands in the world economically, politically, is sophisticated. He's able to speak uh, pretty freely about these things and be challenged about them too. So all of these things were... were not a sure thing. That is, it wasn't obvious that this person who's never been educated abroad, who's spent almost his entire life within this isolated kingdom of Saudi Arabia, would be someone who an American could speak comfortably with, mostly in English. Really? Um, now, is his English better than your Arabic? It is, yes. Yeah. His, okay. his English is much better than my Arabic. He consumes a huge amount of, of uh, just English media, Netflix, and so forth. So. Um, his, his English, I think, is, at this point is very good. Now, the, the, um, the thing that's, that's always strange about meeting a person like this, <laughs> not that I've had that, that many experiences like this, is he is the absolute monarch of Saudi Arabia. He can have people killed at a whim. Mm-hmm. And he's grown up as the son of, a, of a, uh, now the king, and before that, a major, um, major prince within Saudi Arabia. And so nobody can be normal under those circumstances. And he is not normal. He has had so little experience of people saying no to him that it would be uh, miraculous if he somehow emerged from, from that with a uh, sense of limitation on his on his own powers, a uh, sense of limitation of his own capabilities, um, intelligence, and so forth. And that comes through, too, where he will say things and have, I think, very little sense of, of how crazy it sounds to the rest of us and how, megamolo- mega, excuse me, how megalomaniacal sometimes it sounds as well. 
Well, the example of that is his poll quote about Khashoggi. Yeah, I mean, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist and Saudi uh, sort of dissident, whom uh, the security force of MBS murdered, uh, he said, look, um, Jamal Khashoggi wouldn't even have been in the top thousand people I would murder if I was going to murder someone. Uh, he said, I'd never read a, a single article by Jamal Khashoggi. So, you know, usually if, if you are directly or indirectly responsible for the grisly dismemberment of someone, um, yeah, the first thing you do is not talk about how, how little that person mattered to you mm-hmm. or how many other people you'd dis- dismember before you got around to them. And that was the kind of thing that that, that MBS said. And I, I understand what he meant by it, but it shows how far mentally he is from the place where any normal person would be. And you credit that to him not understanding nuances of PR and communication versus him knowing exactly what he's saying and sending a message? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I met with him, there were people in the room with him who uh, whose whole job was to take care of for what he said, you know, PR people, the, the same yes. type of people who would, who would be at the elbow of, of Bill Gates or of Joe Biden. And uh, yeah, there was, um, I think, some discomfort uh, over the way he expressed himself. But, you know, normally you'd have someone stepping in and saying, I think what the crown prince means is this. No, there's nobody doing that. This is a person who is the absolute ruler of a place and is is ruling in a sometimes very violent way. So I don't think he is getting advice that that is unvarnished and that that um, keeps him uh, really familiar with how he sounds to to some people from the outside. So you speak of the Khashoggi murder, which certainly will be a major incident, perhaps overshadowing Biden's visit. There was a moment in time where the international community could have made it clear that the Khashoggi murder was the straw that broke the camel's back and we weren't willing to deal with MBS. That's actually not your statements. That was Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. But I thought about that and I said to myself, really not 9-11, not the war in Yemen? Um, maybe Senator Murphy is wrong or making a point, but not not in any way to minimize the murder of this one man. There is a lot of murder, pain, and destruction emanating from the kingdom beyond this one man. Yeah, and, and um, again, not to minimize what happened, but what happened to Jamal Khashoggi is, is very anomalous for Saudi Arabia. It, you, you may think that the Saudi kingdom is very evil, but one of the things it hasn't done typically is gone overseas and then murdered people, which is something that other countries have done. Iran does that, for example. Right. But Saudi Arabia, even one of the top um, government officials said to me, no, we just pay people off. We've got money. <laughs> so we're really good at paying people off. Now, what can what should we do about this? Senator Chris Murphy's view that this should have been the end of... of um, of MBS or of our relationship with Saudi Arabia, I do think is it's a strange it's a strange view because you're right the war in Yemen, uh, which Murphy is also very exercised about and rightly so, that's killed so many more people than um, than Saudi Arabia has killed in its consulates, uh, and there it's just there's a long list of, of 
crimes that Saudi Arabia has been implicated in. And 9-11 would be one of those. An implication, not much more than that at this point, but still, there have been so many things that, that the United States, because of its clash of values with Saudi Arabia, might list among the, the kingdom's crimes. And the good news about MBS is that most of those are kind of slowly being addressed. So mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia's support for jihadism uh, has gone down to near zero under MBS. MBS has no time for any of that, no tolerance for that. And in, in fact, I think there are human rights issues in Saudi Arabia about how he is treating Islamists, namely by throwing them in prison and, and um, you know, creating a climate of fear about their activities. So if you went back to 2001 or 2003 and then made a list of all the things you would want to see Saudi Arabia changing, MBS would be you know, right now is working through that list with a lot of success. Mm -hmm. Weaning the kingdom off of oil, liberalizing it, uh, allowing um, tolerance for other religions, even within the borders, borders of Saudi Arabia. All of these things are, are actually happening. Um, something clo closer to equality of the sexes within the kingdom. So check, check, check. What is not even on the list at all is turning into some kind of democracy that looks like the United States or looks like Holland or something like that. Yeah. And th that that's just not in the cards. And that's what MBS has been saying um, more or less explicitly in my conversation with him for the Atlantic was, we're not going to be doing that. We are going to do everything you want us to do except for that. And, uh, you know, if you push us too far, then unfortunately we won't be able to do, get around to some of those other things you want us to do either. But we will. We want to do that. You just have to guarantee our survival and our survival as an absolute monarchy. When Biden is there, the, there will certainly be some talk, some pressure of the United States lecturing the Saudis or chastising the Saudis for the war in Yemen. And yet, you know, the United States backs the war in Yemen. There was a resolution of disapproval of uh, the of essentially the Saudis using American weapons to prosecute the war in Yemen. That resolution was defeated 67 to 30. Um, there were Republican sponsors uh, of the resolution in the 30s. So it was a somewhat bipartisan. How does, and, and I know that they view the war in Yemen as an illegitimate government is that is a threat to Saudi Arabia is in place. And it's certainly within their national interests and international law to uh, fight the war in Yemen. But how do you think that the United States or the Biden administration or anyone can handle the discussion about this that doesn't make us look like uh, too big a hypocrite? Yeah, so the war in Yemen is a very complex thing. Part of my trips to Saudi Arabia over the last couple of years have been going along the Yemeni border just to see what it's like. And um, there's a couple of things that I would say. First of all, the, the war in Yemen is probably more popular than most people think it is in mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia. It's considered a, a patriotic war and a war uh, for the security of Saudi territory, which it is in the sense that there are rockets that have been sent into into Saudi Arabia from Yemen, yeah. and they hit the airport. They 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 kill people. So it's 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 not nothing. The other thing about the war in Yemen, of course, is uh, Iran. It is seen as a proxy war with Iran, and by any um, by any measure, it's a dirty proxy war with Iran. So this is a kind of surrender or starve war. It, it, it there has been. Um, for Saudi Arabia, a, a number of you know, unconscionable 
tactics that have been used in Yemen. And with Iran, too, there, there's been um, you know, a near psychopathic lack of care for the Yemeni people. So I think what, what Biden has to do uh, with regard to the Yemeni war is to see what, whether any of the kinds of ceasefires that Saudi has been pretty important and it's been, it's been a party to the war. So it, it has to be part of the uh, efforts to, to find ceasefires and to extend those and then try to figure a way out of it. But it, to, to look at it the way it's sometimes depicted by enemies of Saudi mm-hmm. as just Saudi Arabia com- committing, uh, you know, like acts of a criminal war, a near genocidal war in Yemen is probably not going to get us very far because in Saudi Arabia, it's not seen that way, first of all. And then some of the facts are on Saudi side in, in the sense that there is a way where Saudi Arabia needs to to um, to keep its borders secure and uh, you know, can't allow Yemen to become a, a, a client state of Iran and uh, a uh, sort of a, a way for Iran to extend its power militarily against Saudi Arabia as it's trying to do elsewhere too. But they do keep throwing treasure at it. They do keep throwing Saudi lives at it. Sure, they have mercenaries from Sudan and other countries maybe doing their dirtiest of dirty work. And also, sure, the treasure they keep throwing at it doesn't seem to be depleting, especially with oil prices. But does MBS look at this as a uh, losing fight or at best a stalemate that doesn't make sense to be in for the long term? MBS knows that he's got to get out of Yemen eventually. Now, Part of what MBS has been doing is trying to reframe the identity of Saudi Arabia no longer as the standard bearer for global Islam, but instead turning Saudi Arabia into a nationalist state. And what's better than creating a national for creating a nationalist state than having a war that you can say your nation is threatened and your nation is fighting back? So what what you see along the Yemeni border with the military mobilization is all over the place, nationalist slogans that have interestingly replaced the roadside slogans on billboards and so on that were Islamist in the past. So I, I think that there has been a value to the Yemen war in uh, for MBS's uh, domestic kind of domestic uh, political product. And at some point that that is, I hope, going to uh, no longer be enough of a justification to keep the, the, the war going on. So I don't know how that's gonna how that's gonna play out, but um, the value of the war has diminished with time, and I hope it will diminish to zero, so that there's a resolution that can be found. MBS had a good relationship with the Trump administration, had a poor relationship with the Obama administration. Uh, probably has at least at best a suspicious relationship with the Biden administration. How much does any of that affect him domestically? Uh, domestically, that that's an interesting one. Um, so you're right in that characterization. The Obama administration did not get along with him well. The Trump administration, <laughs> some Saudis said some funny things to me. They, they said, we totally get it. Yeah. It's not weird <laughs> at all to us to have, you know, there's a U.S. president who's sending his unqualified son-in-law to do politics. That's just our system of government. That's, that's Crown how it Princes, works. we are the we're the Crown Prince people. Hello. It makes total sense to us. Yeah. So you move back to Biden, and Biden seems almost certainly to have a personal, visceral dislike for MBS, and that matters a lot. None of this really matters too much to to the um, like domestic approval of the Crown Prince. The Crown Prince, first of all, is still pretty popular in Saudi Arabia because some of the kind of social low-hanging fruit, open up, opening up movie theaters and so forth, 
Young Saudis like that. Young Saudis for a very long time have felt left out uh, and they felt they've had to go overseas to, to do any of the things that any and of to their interrupt, peers. When you say young Saudis, the demographics of that country are skewed very young, right? Yes, that's right. So I'm talking about Saudis under the age of, of like 35, which is yep. a huge number of people. And they see MBS as someone who's made a lot of necessary reforms. Now, um, the fact that Biden personally doesn't like him, um, MBS said to me, you know, Biden's got to do what he's going to do. If he thinks alienating us is, is the way to do it, then, you know, uh, make my day. Go ahead, give it a try. So I, I don't think MBS loses any, uh, any cred in the kingdom for saying that kind of thing. But it does make the relations, the international relations with the United States and others a lot more complicated. For years, the United States has called on Saudi to moderate uh, in different areas. Saudi has moderated. Is there a cause and effect? Uh, Saudi Arabia has moderated um, not, I mean, the United States has been, exactly as you say, has been haranguing Saudi Arabia for a long time. You know, they, they have... It, the easiest country to vilify in Washington, D.C. for a long time has been Saudi Arabia. What an unlovable country. I mean, they're cutting off people's heads in public uh, for crimes, pseudo crimes like witchcraft. Um, it, so, you know, it's, it's not hard to, 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 to portray them that way. What I, I think um, has happened, though, is as Saudi Arabia has had more links to the outside, more people traveling, huge numbers of Saudis going overseas, including in large numbers to the United States, um, that it has less had to do with uh, recriminations and moralizing by the United States than those Saudis just seeing that the world does not suck overseas. It's nice and they want more of it. And when they have heard for years, like take the issue of women driving, you ask them, what happens if women drive, then they were told for years that there will be prostitution on every street corner. Women will use their cars to go to places and have sex with men they don't know for money. Mm -hmm. In other words, there will be these, these moral doomsday effects that for a long time, Saudis had to take the word of these grisly clerics who would say that that's what the, the, the um, unavoidable consequence of liberalization will, will be. And just in the last 20 years or so, uh, it's been clear that that's just not the case because they've gone overseas enough. They've seen that the world still works. It works maybe even better than it did in Saudi Arabia. And then you combine that with a crown prince who's the first of his generation, the first young monarch Saudi Arabia has had in a long time. And he's a guy who's actually willing to make those changes and to uh, fight, uh, imprison, kill people who might be opposed to them. So it's... It's a confluence of things only partly motivated, I I think, by the moralizing that comes from people like us. So finally, there is a chance that the crown prince does not become the king, but I take it we cannot possibly put odds on that chance. Is that about right? I think the chances that that happens, that MBS is not the king someday, are, are very low. And the way that it would happen is not political. It's not because the United States would say we want someone else. Uh, it's maybe more likely to be biological. I mean, the, the crown prince has had brothers who have died before their time. Um, and, you, you know, there are, um, there are, there's precedent for assassination uh, coups in Saudi Arabia and in the region um, 
who knows what happens uh, medically to him in the few years that that uh, his father has left. But those things are much more likely to to change the succession than somehow uh, Joe Biden or Tony Blinken going to the king and saying, can you consider someone else instead of this person <laughs> that you've uh, publicly said is your guy for the last five years and whom you seem to trust? Graham Wood is a staff writer at The Atlantic. His article a couple months back, Absolute Power, absolutely explains the power of Saudi Arabia. He's also the author of The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. The Webb Space Telescope returned its first beautiful images from, as the name implies, space. And Joe Bai, the science guy, was there to talk us through the glorious triumph of imagination and federal funding. On a journey one million miles into the cosmos. First of all, that blows my mind. A million miles into the cosmos. I love NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. Some folks like the Mars rover, but to me, those are the types of people who watch Star Wars for the droids, not the spaceships. And it does bring to mind those pictures from the old Hubble Space Telescope, which was deployed in 1990 and billed as the most advanced telescopic technology ever developed. It enthralled and educated us for years, beyond even its predicted lifespan. But now, thanks to the new Webb telescope, we can rightly regard the Hubble as a giant pile of feces, just a disgusting collection of buttons and lenses that somehow tricked us into thinking it was interesting. I look at the Hubble photos now, knowing what I know about the Webb, and I want to vomit, and then weep, and then vomit upon my tears. And that is what is called progress, my friend, to know that once you marveled at was in fact wrong, bordering on morally indefensible. I'm not going to tell you even what the Hubble tweeted back in 2015. It's since been deleted. Best. We're best for that. Now listen to this from the official NASA website. While Webb will explore the cosmos in infrared light, Hubble will continue its observations of the universe in visible and ultraviolet wavelengths. Okay, that might have been NASAganda, but it is true that the Webb has deeper infrared vision, 0.6 microns to 28.5 microns, where the Hubble was optimized for shorter ultraviolet and visible wavelengths of light, 0.1 microns to 2.5 microns. And my question is, did they think future generations, like, wouldn't notice? This is so not acceptable. Ugh. It is the ultravioletist. Do better, Hubble. Take the L. Joe Bar, the science guy, spit some web truth last night. Deploying a mirror 21 feet wide, a sun shield the size of a tennis court. And the web does not play. It has a 21.3 primary mirror, which, let's acknowledge, though, is not even enough to see all the clusters that are finally able to feel seen. The Hubble had a mirror of 7.9 feet. I just can't with the Hubble. Is that a crisp intergalactic image Hubble or a screen grab from my Game Boy in 1989? The web is made out of beryllium, which is both strong and light. The Hubble's mirror was made of ultra-low expansion glass, 
coated in thin layers of aluminum and magnesium fluoride. Do you know how magnesium fluoride is extracted? Well, it's not my job to educate you. I will say this. The Hubble was a fuzzy-ass low-Earth orbit monstrosity that gaslit us into buying its narrative. We need to realize now that we internalized its fuzziness. We need to do the work to recognize that. I want to thank the web for forcing this realization upon us because, as Joe By, the science guy, says, These images are going to remind the world that America can do big things and then remind the American people, especially our children, that there's nothing beyond our capacity. Nothing beyond our capacity. Except for making safe baby formula. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, just assistant producer, utilizes an adaptive optic system that can correct for blurring over small fields of view near bright stars functioning as reference beacons. Senior producer Joel Patterson uses a refractive null corrector to check focal length of the primary mirror. He's good at that. As COO of Peachfish Productions, Michelle Pasca measures the flexing vibration of a bowl-shaped stemmed crystal to sense angular motion. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.